Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Happy summer to you. Happy summer. Uh, Got to have your cup of joe. Absolutely. Uh, I know you've been away, you've been traveling a lot, and uh, I uh, really enjoy reading your posts on LinkedIn, and I would uh, commend that uh, line of, uh, of prose uh, and, and artistic work uh, to any listener, uh, because it's uh, you've really, uh, I think, given us in orthopedics a, a, a major contribution in, in the, the whole issue of balance in life and professional and family and the different sides of our brain, et cetera. So uh, I, again, I commend you, keep it up. It's great work. I enjoy reading it. And I, I know you were in India. Uh, yeah. so I know you've been traveling. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Christina gave us a, a, a couple weeks off from, from Ortho Joe. So yeah, I'm a little bit sleepy. So I absolutely had to have my cup of Joe this morning. But uh, so th this is one of our uh, episodes where we just talk about what we have been uh, publishing recently and what's on our mind, what caught our interest and what we want to chat about. So I'm going to give uh, you uh, the chance to go first. What's been on your mind from OE? Yeah, sure. So let me just preface it by saying that um, and, uh, the thing I always say, I haven't been to India for a couple of years now, Mark, and I know you've traveled there a bit. Yeah. Um, India for me is always a race. And those who have traveled to India understand exactly what that uh, gastrointestinal race may be. And so the goal is to get out unscathed. And I've tried multiple con uh, concoctions to stay healthy. And I am healthy, uh, but I will say that India always wins. Period. That's it. India always wins. This is fascinating <laughs> to me, Mo. Because I have to tell you, so you're talking to somebody of, of English or you know English and European uh, uh, Polish background. Yeah. I, I never have trouble with Indian cuisine, and I've been so, there probably six or eight times. I, so, it just doesn't bother me. So that's amazing because <laughs> so the thing is, I eat anything and everything, and the problem is, is when I go there. I have my rules. Okay, you know, you, you know, just you know, just take care of water. Avoid, you know, avoid yeah. places you haven't, you know, just off the street. Yeah. I walk in and I just first thing I grab a glass of water off from a small little place, and I have the first street food I have. I think I'll be, <laughs> ah, that's I'll be the difference. I'll be fine. Yeah. So it's just everything, like you know, the sights, the smells, the tastes, everything of India yeah. is so amazing, overwhelming, yeah. overwhelming, yeah. right? But India wins. India always yeah. wins. Okay. Um, so I know I've been thinking about what uh, I could speak to, and I thought there would be one area of interest that has a methodological bent on it. And this gets back to a paper that we uh, both had a podcast on and also did a review on. It was a Lancet paper in April of 2022, so not that long ago. It was a UK trial. And let me just give you a bit of a pricey to what I'm talking about. And I'll get into the trial very quickly and get your insight. So this is uh, about an in-space device. This is a subacromial balloon spacer for uh, irreparable uh, rotator cuff tears. And it received CE marketing in 2010 and had been used in about 29,000 procedures until July of 2021, when it received FDA clearance uh, in the USA. The National Institute of Health um, and Care Excellence NICE now reviewed the available data for the in-space device back in May of 2016 and found at that time, one published case series and a few conference abstracts. So they had said at that point, listen, we think it should be used in the UK primarily for research, and we really encourage a randomized trial. So the authors, this is Dr. Metcalf and the STAR REACTS team, 
went ahead with a trial of about 117 participants who were randomized. They called this a, a randomized double-blind multicenter trial. Uh, this was an adaptive trial. We can talk about that too. But pr principally, they went out to try to solve this issue. And they said, you know, what we'll do is we will uh, look at this in patients who have arthroscopic debridement for subacromial, uh, of the subacromial space with a biceps tenotomy. So in other words, that's the uh, debridement only group. And then they did the exact same procedure adding uh, the in-space uh, balloon spacer. So that was the, the, the comparative group. Ultimately, they followed patients for about 12 months. And they use the Oxford uh, shoulder score at the 12 months as well. Here's the point I want to make. Participants and assessors were masked, uh, Mark, in both, uh, to both uh, group assignments. So masking was achieved by using identical incisions um, both for both of the procedures, blinding of the operation note, which is, I think, was an important factor, and consistent rehab program. So they're really trying to make sure that anyone involved in the outcome assessment at any level uh, did not understand or, or was not aware of that. The actual treatment. So what they found was in these 170 patients followed that debridement only led to a significantly greater benefit than the actual active group with the in-space uh, spacer. Now, yeah. conversely, at the same time, and I'll just put this little note here, um, same month, there was another trial published on the exact same thing. This was published by uh, Dr. Verma and colleagues, and this was in the Journal of Bone Joint Surgery, another you know, very yeah. good randomized trial. Yeah. You know, about 184 patients on the rough same size as the number of patients. Um, and basically, this was a uh, toted as a single blinded study. So just to clear, same general uh, patient population, you know, we, we can argue the details, but principally the same general uh, treatment population, the same plan, 24 month follow up and using the American shoulder and elbow society score. Um, they did state up front the authors um, to their, you know, they were transparent. They said, you know, one of the limitations is that the valuators of physical examination were not blinded to treatment group. And they said, which may have led to a potential bias, but that was in the, in, in the discussion itself. They found actually that there was no difference. And in fact, that the in-space uh, arm uh, led to better outcomes. Right. Um, we can get into the details of the nuances and I'm not here to debate, uh, you know, uh, the details of the specific procedures, but in the context of blinding, um, it was interesting to me, right? Is you know we've often talked about some of the greatest threats to uh, introducing bias are you know lack of concealed randomization and, and blinding are the two. In fact, you know mm -hmm. the Haddad scale, you know J A D A D, way back when, yeah, use those as the two primary factors. And on ortho evidence, people always get angry with us when they have they perceive they blinded. We downscore the trial, saying no, it's not truly blinded, right? This is a type of trial that has some interest in that. And I wonder from your perspective, I said a lot here, but I wonder from your perspective, you know, do you believe that this, that, that that could have been a factor in why these trials had different outcomes? And again, we're not debating which one's right or which one's wrong, more so the difference in outcomes. Yeah, so when we had a brief email exchange about what we thought we might talk about, I of course went to our, uh, our, our website and looked up what we'd published on this and came across this trial. And the very first thing I, thought of, uh, since it comes up when I am giving presentations on how to optimize your chances to get manuscripts published was the issue of blinding. Yeah. Uh, and really, I don't, I don't follow why the investigators didn't have blinded assessors of outcomes, because it's, as you and I know, it's not really that difficult to do. You have a Correct. physiotherapist or a, another a colleague who's, who's not involved, and if you have different incisions, you just put a garment on, 
Yeah. Uh, and and you you have blind in a set. It's it's really the simplest thing to do to to enhance the believability, if you will, of results. And um, yes, uh, so the answer is a strong yes that I I think that this may have played a major role. It, it's you know you you obviously have an enthusiasts uh, for the procedure who are performing the procedures. Otherwise, they wouldn't participate in the trial. So sure. It, and it's it's just human nature that we 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 want things to be better, even though it's a, I'm sure at the subconscious level. Oh yeah, and you know, and I remember um, David Sackett, the late David Sackett, who had mm -hmm. said that you know one thing that he had tried in some of his trials post you know like just before the trial results were revealed, but he had gone back to patients and said you know to really see if, if blinding was truly occurring. Ask patients, what do you think you had? Did you think you were in the treatment group or the control group? And it was an interesting way to understand whether blinding or masking in this case had been successful. Mm -hmm. Now, he later sort of said, you know, it, he didn't think that made sense because, you know, people who generally feel better mm -hmm. just think they're in the treatment group. And the thing is, if your treatment actually works, then they're more likely to guess right. So that yeah. became some of the challenge, but it was an interesting dynamic. And I wonder just how many patients would have had the perception uh, of knowing that they had had the treatment, right? It's easy, like, you know, when we, when we document something, it's one thing, but to actually have a sense of whether patients are truly blinded, my perception is the more people who don't know, the less likely it trickles back to the patient. And that's all. And so my perception is, I think it is a real difference. I, I do think that, you know, um, blinding one more group of individuals, especially when you're looking at functional outcomes that are likely going to have some third-party assessment, yeah. that individual knowing or understanding it, it's just going to be an implied or implicit yeah. bias and how we assess it. Some people may believe, and you know, the argument would be, well, it's always going to be in favor of the device. Not necessarily. There may be many reviewers who think, I don't think it works. Yeah. So it, you know, it can go both ways. The problem is we don't know which direction it's going to go. And we typically make the judgment that, oh, if you haven't blinded, there's going to be differences. And so this was just, in a, just a kind of, I would say somewhat of an interesting finding that I wanted to share with you. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what the next thing to do. So when, when you think about this and you see another papers come out um, on the topic, two discrepant papers, what do we do here? Because what's the guidance at this point? Because if you look at the UK guides, UK guides is going to be very different from what's happening yeah. in probably America, I would imagine. Because uh, yeah, Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, we're big, strong believers in the quality of the evidence. And I, I think we have to give the nod uh, to the UK trial as, a, yeah. as being a stronger uh, experimental construct. And Yeah. And the thing I would say is, I mean, right now, like, so if we were to go ahead and do a meta-analysis, like, you know, I say, oh, you have two trials, let's compare them, put them together. It's not going to be in necessarily that meaningful because you've got two different methodologies right. and you're putting them together and you're, you're probably going to get a null neutralizing mean, yeah but it's not yeah. really null right yeah. like there's something going on here so there'll be a lot of heterogeneity there sadly uh, i'm not sure we've answered the question in a way at least in north america there's going to have to be some additional you know evaluation now i know for a fact um that we may get some listeners thinking okay these guys have it wrong they don't know the nuances the lancet trial had a whole bunch of errors the lancet folks i'm sure are thinking you know the following and this is where we get into the back and forth debate yeah but at the end of the day we don't have to have debate if we have a big trial right. lots of centers and yeah. we have and we do everything we can to try to keep it as robust as possible anyways yeah. that was my two cents this morning yeah well you know it just goes back to the essential difference of uh, surgical trials versus pharmacologic trials or medical trials that you just can't we don't do placebo blinding very often it's that's way lots too difficult and yeah. I recall very early in your career when you were just getting started in in your in your trial career and attracting your your mentor Gordon Gaia into yeah. the field of surgical trials because he knew uh, rightfully so that 
surgical trials were way more difficult. And he was, in essence, uh, deciding to play from the back tees uh, in golf. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is that the FDA, not even funny, FDA, their biggest concern with surgical trials has been surgeons aren't blinded. So when you're making radiographic assessments on anything, whether it's loosening or implant or healing, whatever the case may be, you know, it's it, the reviewers absolutely know what, for the most part, that there's an implant, they know that they're unblinded. And so there's yeah. a huge bias. And that leads to a lot, a lot of debate at these kind of meetings. And quite frankly, I should think, well, this, this is much to do about nothing, but actually it isn't. It's a real serious concern that we have. And I think any limited, anything we can do, as you said, to mm. add one more safeguard is always yeah. better. And it's worth every penny that we do, because then you don't have the debates afterwards, right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Lessons we learn over and over again. Yeah. Well, so um, I chose uh, from the most recent issue of the journal, uh, the, the lead article, uh, which is on tranexamic acid in high risk uh, patients with hip fractures. Now, you and I have spent decades studying hip fracture patients, yeah. and this yeah. comes out of the Mayo Clinic. Um, it is uh, uh, not a randomized uh, trial. It's 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 a level four evidence, uh, but um, it, it, it does make an important point. Uh, they studied um, in four hospitals over a four-year period of time uh, the use of transexamic acid uh, versus no uh, TXA, uh, and, and they in included in, in this group uh, patients who are very, very high risk with, with, with diabetes, dementia, et cetera, et cetera, all known to increase morbidity and mor mortality. And uh, with some sophisticated statistics that were, of course, approved by our one of our deputy editors for statistics and methodology, they, they basically showed that in the high-risk patients, um, uh, there, there was no increased risk of mortality, DVT, pulmonary embolus, MI, or stroke within 90 days of surgery. And I, I just felt that um, this was really important information for uh, clinicians, uh, e even though it is level four evidence, uh, it would be uh, prudent for us as an orthopedic community to do uh, a, a blind, uh, blinded uh, RCT uh, on this, um, which would be difficult as all surgical trials are. But I think this is important information. And I know that in OE, you have uh, published a, a fair amount on yeah. tranexamic acid in other applications. And I was just wondering what you thought about uh, this particular study, as well as uh, what you've learned uh, in other applications, such as knee arthroplasty, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and I went back the same way and I looked back and then in May of this year, uh, so it's fairly recent, actually, uh, we put out an, what we call the OE originals mark, which is sort of our own internal evaluation of the evidence. And, you know, to your point, surprisingly, there's not there's, there's trials. There's there's several trials. Now, you know, the issue is going to be, to your point, the word large, you know, we need yeah. potentially we always say that we need a bit more data, but we have some insights we can share. The one thing that really came up about um, transexamic acid, right, was it's real, real uh, use and evidence in other areas. So when we look at where it's really had a huge impact, it's had a huge impact in uh, cardiac surgery and C-section, yeah. it's had a huge impact in joint arthroplasty. But the question was, you know, hip fractures, you know, is, is, is it the same or difference? The POISE-3 trial, this is a trial led by Dr. PJ Devereaux, he's a mm -hmm. McMaster University colleague, but has run numerous large trials. This was 9,000 patients, and it, this was all non-cardiac patients, including hip fractures. Um, and really, they basically found in a, in a, that this was placebo-controlled, 
And they identified that there was a significantly lower incidence of what they called composite bleeding outcomes. Now, that covers the whole gamut, but yeah. it gave a broad sense that probably, um, you know, hip fractures would fit into that area. Now, there's been lots of other subspecialized focus on hip fractures. And to your point, great observational data, such as, you know, what's coming yeah. out of the Mayo Clinic and also some supportive trials as well. Uh, we identified in this review very briefly about nine randomized trials roughly, you know, just under a couple of thousand patients or so, I think it was like 879, maybe a thousand patients, 879 patients or so cumulative. So you can see 9,000 patient, big RCT on everything, but the hip fracture data set was a little smaller. So that's why I think the observational data being in, in added to this gives us just more information, which is, I think, very important. Same sorts of things. I mean, you know, real, real compelling um, you know, storyline, as you suggested, on reducing bleeding risk and bleeding outcomes. Mm -hmm. Still really unclear about the major, you know, so no difference in, in major safety events like mortality risk. The problem is, do we actually have enough information to yeah. make that? Probably not. Um, but all the signals at this point would suggest that it's quite safe to use in patients with hip fractures. Similar safety as we've seen in other areas uh, and other, um, you know, indications. And really seems to be pretty significant. And I'll get to the specific, but, you know, we talk about total blood loss seems to do significantly better in reducing that. And then just the need for transfusion seems to be uh, significantly yeah. lower. Um, but the other outcomes that are, you know, there's a whole bunch of other outcomes related to, you know, events, you know, uh, vascular events, it's no difference. But again, we don't know if we're powered for those kind of differences. Yeah. So overall, I think we're all saying the same thing. Yeah. But the, in, uh, the trend, the trend, as, as, it, as we use that word, is, is towards uh, favorable uh, use of this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, without any real safety signal risk, and uh, better outcomes on some of the composites like bleeding, um, it seems that it would be a, a reasonable standard for adoption uh, you know, yeah. until there are larger trials that should come out. And I think we're continuing. It's not like um, the perception is it's been answered. It's just that we're getting more information with every publication. Yeah, this also caused me to reflect on how our field of orthopedic surgery has progressed in terms of, of blood management, uh, particularly over the last 25 years. And all of the things that we were doing, you know, having patients bank blood and transfusing people with hemoglobin of 10 and above and all of the progress we've made, including tranexamic acid uh, has really moved the field uh, forward to the point really where we don't really talk that much anymore about uh, transfusion uh, requirements, et cetera, uh, due to the advances we've had in understanding and in, in pharmacologic intervention. It's really been a, a good story for us in orthopedics. Absolutely, Mark. And if you look at where we're headed, uh, you, you remember the hip attack trial, yeah. the first one that came out in The Lancet not that long ago, that suggested that, you know, earlier treatment, rapid acceleration of hip fracture care, meaning often nice patients, you know, like, you know, we don't have the, the luxury and the time to do what we used to do 10 years ago. If you're looking at accelerating patient care, you've got to come up with ways in which uh, you know, and treatments and allocations that you can, you know, get patients through the system very quickly and safely. The yeah. hip attack two trial will be looking specifically uh, at accelerated care in these patients, you know, that, that'll, some of which, many of which will be on, you know, uh, transoxemic acid, you know, uh, as a, yeah. as a, as itself, as, as a, as a thinner, right? So they're going to yeah. be on something. It'll be interesting to see how these sorts of trials, you know, find their way, because I think we're getting into this true care path that is leading as we've been, I've said this how many times, every time the word hip fracture comes up, some of the 
greatest innovations around hip fractures are unlikely going to be implant-based and yeah. likely care-based, care path-based. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's where we're heading. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to be new devices. That's uh, that's really seen that way. Yeah, we've really we've run that course. So, yeah. well, it's been great to chat with you, Mo. And I think these episodes where we just talk about things that are we perceive as being important in our respective journals are important to share with the audience and just uh, confirms uh, to me uh, as the editor and I know to you that all of this uh, is, is probably worth all the all the work to, to get these things uh, out to the to the people making clinical care decisions. So cheers to OE and cheers to JBJS. And uh, I hope you have a safe summer, particularly with that interest of yours of going 60 miles an hour down a mountain <laughs> on a mountain bike, um, which concerns me a little bit. Does, doesn't uh, disc disc golf, does, uh, frisbee golf doesn't worry me so much as, as that activity, but. Uh, oh, but you know what disc golf, but you know what this disc golf has done? It's given me a needle epicondylitis and I've never had that from riding downhill, right? I might have, no, cause I have a helmet on, so I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Crazy. Anyways. Have a good day. All right, you have a great day. Cheers. Yeah, take care. Bye.